Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. episode is brought to you by an old sheepdog. Tonight, we'll read the opening to the story At the Bay, written by Catherine Mansfield, published in 1922. Mansfield was a New Zealand writer, widely considered one of the most influential and important authors of the modernist movement. Her works are celebrated across the world and have been published in 25 languages. This story, based on her childhood growing up in the suburbs of New Zealand, represents Mansfield's best mature work, a luminous example of her literary impressionism. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Now, take a few deep breaths. The sun was not yet risen, and the whole of Crescent Bay was hidden under a white sea mist. The big, 
bush-covered hills at the back were smothered. You could not see where they ended, and the paddocks and bungalows began. The sandy road was gone, and the paddocks and bungalows the other side of it. There were no white dunes covered with reddish grass beyond them. There was nothing to mark which was beach and where was the sea. A heavy dew had fallen. The grass was blue. Big drops hung on the bushes and just did not fall. The silvery, fluffy toy toy was limp on its long stalks and all the marigolds and the pinks in the bungalow gardens were bowed to the earth with wetness. Drenched were the cold fuchsias. Round pearls of dew lay on the flat nasturtium leaves. It looked as though the sea had beaten up softly in the darkness, as though one immense wave had come rippling, rippling, how far? Perhaps if you had waked up in the middle of the night, you might have seen a big fish flicking in at the window and gone again. Ah, ah, sounded the sleepy sea. And from the bush there came the sound of little streams flowing, quickly, lightly, slipping between the smooth stones, gushing into ferny basins, and out again. And there was the splashing of big drops on large leaves, and something else. What was it? A faint stirring and shaking the snapping of a twig, and then such silence that it seemed someone was listening. Round the corner of Crescent Bay, between the piled-up masses of broken rock, a flock of sheep came pattering. They were huddled together, a small, tossing, woolly mass, and their thin, stick-like legs trotted along quickly as if the cold and the quiet had frightened them. Behind them, an old sheepdog, his soaking paws covered with sand, ran along with his nose to the ground, but carelessly, as if thinking of something else. And then... In the rocky gateway, the shepherd himself appeared. He was a lean, upright old man, in a coat that was covered with a web of tiny drops, velvet trousers tied under the knee, and a wide awake with a folded blue handkerchief round the brim. One hand was crammed into his belt. The other grasped a beautifully smooth yellow stick. 
And as he walked, taking his time, he kept up a very soft, light whistling, an airy, faraway fluting that sounded mournful and tender. The old dog cut an ancient caper or two and then drew up sharp, ashamed of his levity, and walked a few dignified paces by his master's side. The sheep ran forward in little pattering rushes. They began to bleat, and ghostly flocks and herds answered them from under the sea. Bah, bah. For a time, they seemed to be always on the same piece of ground. There ahead was stretched the sandy road with shallow puddles. The same soaking bushes showed on either side and the same shadowy palings. Then something immense came into view. An enormous, shock-haired giant with his arms stretched out. It was the big gum tree outside Mrs. Stubbs' shop. And as they passed, there was a strong whiff of eucalyptus. And now big spots of light gleamed in the mist. The shepherd stopped whistling. He rubbed his red nose and wet beard on his wet sleeve and, screwing up his eyes, glanced in the direction of the sea. The sun was rising. It was marvelous how quickly the mist thinned, sped away, dissolved from the shallow plain, rolled up from the bush and was gone as if in a hurry to escape. Big twists and curls jostled and shouldered each other as the silvery beams broadened. The faraway sky, a bright, pure blue, was reflected in the puddles and the drops swimming along the telegraph poles flashed into points of light. Now, the leaping, glittering sea was so bright it made one's eyes ache to look at it. The shepherd drew a pipe, the bowl as small as an acorn, out of his breast pocket, fumbled for a chunk of speckled tobacco, pared off a few shavings, and stuffed the bowl. He was a grave, fine-looking old man. As he lit up and the blue smoke wreathed his head, the dog, watching, looked proud of him. Ba ba. the sheep spread out into a fan. They were just clear of the summer colony 
before the first sleeper turned over and lifted a drowsy head. Their cry sounded in the dreams of little children who lifted their arms to drag down to cuddle the darling little woolly lambs of sleep. Then the first inhabitant appeared. It was the Burnell's cat, Flory, sitting on the gatepost, far too early as usual, looking for their milk girl. When she saw the old sheep dog, she sprang up quickly, arched her back, drew in her tabby head, and seemed to give a little fastidious shiver. Ugh, what a coarse, revolting creature, said Flory. But the old cheap dog, not looking up, waggled past, flinging out his legs from side to side. Only one of his ears twitched to prove that he saw and thought her a silly young female. The breeze of morning lifted in the bush and the smell of leaves and wet black earth mingled with the sharp smell of the sea. Myriads of birds were singing. A goldfinch flew over the shepherd's head and, perching on the tip-top of a spray, it turned to the sun ruffling its small breast feathers. And now they had passed the fisherman's hut, past the charred-looking little ware where Leela, the milk girl, lived with her old gran. The sheepdog padded after, rounded them up, and headed them for the steeper, narrower, rocky pass that led out of Crescent Bay and towards Daylight Cove. Bah, bah. Faint the cry came as they rocked along the fast, drying road. The shepherd put away his pipe, dropping it into his breast pocket so that the little bowl hung over. And straightway, the soft, airy whistling began again. Wag ran out along a ledge of rock after something that smelled and ran back again disgusted. Then, pushing, nudging, Hurrying, the sheep rounded the bend, and the shepherd followed after, out of sight. Two. A few moments later, the back door of one of the bungalows opened, and a figure in a broad-striped bathing suit flung down the paddock, cleared the stile, rushed through the tussock grass into the hollow, 
staggered up the sandy hillock and raced for dear life over the big, porous stones, over the cold, wet pebbles, onto the hard sand that gleamed like oil. Splish-splash, splish-splash. The water bubbled round his legs as Stanley Burnell waded out, exulting. First man in, as usual. He'd beaten them all again. And he swooped down to souse his head and neck. Hail, brother, all hail, thou mighty one. A velvety bass voice came booming over the water. Great Scott, damnation take it. Stanley lifted up to see a dark head bobbing far out and an arm lifted. It was Jonathan Trout there before him. Glorious morning, sang the voice. Yes, very fine, said Stanley briefly. Why the dickens didn't the fellow stick to his part of the sea? Why should he come barging over to this exact spot? Stanley gave a kick, a lunge, and struck out, swimming over arm. But Jonathan was a match for him. Up he came, his black hair sleek on his forehead and his short beard sleek. Look here, Trout, he said. I'm in rather a hurry this morning. You're what? Jonathan was so surprised, or pretended to be, that he sank under the water, then reappeared again, blowing. All I mean is, said Stanley, I've no time to, to, to fool about. I want to get this over. I'm in a hurry. I've work to do this morning, see? Jonathan was gone before Stanley had finished. Pass, friend, said the bass voice gently, and he slid away through the water with scarcely a ripple. But curse the fellow. He'd ruined Stanley's bathe. What an unpractical idiot the man was. Stanley struck out to the sea again, and then as quickly swam in again, and away he rushed up the beach. He felt cheated. Jonathan stayed a little longer in the water. He floated, gently moving his hands like fins, and letting the sea rock his long, skinny body. It was curious, but in spite of everything, he was fond of Stanley Burnell. True, he had a fiendish desire to tease him sometimes, to poke fun at him. But at bottom, he was sorry for the fellow. There was something pathetic in his determination to make a job of everything. You couldn't help feeling he'd be caught out one day, 
and then what an almighty cropper he'd come. At that moment, an immense wave lifted Jonathan, rode past him, and broke along the beach with a joyful sound. What a beauty! And now there came another. That was the way to live. Carelessly, recklessly, spending oneself. He got onto his feet and began to wade towards the shore, pressing his toes into the firm, wrinkled sand to take things easy, not to fight against the ebb and flow of life, but to give way to it. That was what was needed. It was this tension that was all wrong. To live. To live. And the perfect morning, so fresh and fair, basking in the light, as though laughing at its own beauty, seemed to whisper, why not? Three. Beryl was alone in the living room when Stanley appeared, wearing a blue serge suit, a stiff collar, and a spotted tie He looked almost uncannily clean and brushed. He was going to town for the day. Dropping into his chair, he pulled out his watch and put it beside his plate. I've just got 25 minutes, he said. You might go and see if the porridge is ready, Beryl. Mother's just gone for it, said Beryl. She sat down at the table and poured out his tea. Thanks. Stanley took a sip. Hello, he said in an astonished voice. You've forgotten the sugar. Oh, sorry. But even then, Beryl didn't help him. She pushed the basin across. What did this mean? As Stanley helped himself, his blue eyes widened. They seemed to quiver. He shot a quick glance at his sister-in-law and leaned back. At that moment, the door opened and the three little girls appeared, each carrying a porridge plate. They were dressed alike in blue jerseys and knickers. Their brown legs were bare, and each had her hair plaited and pinned up in what was called a horse's tail. Behind them came Mrs. Fairfield with the tray. Carefully, children, she warned, but they were taking the very greatest care. They loved being allowed to carry things. Have you said good morning to your father? Yes, Grandma. They settled themselves on the bench opposite Stanley and Beryl. 
Good morning, Stanley. Old Mrs. Fairfield gave him his plate. Morning, Mother. How's the boy? Splendid. He only woke up once last night. What a perfect morning. The old woman paused, her hand on the loaf of bread, to gaze out of the open door into the garden. The sea sounded. Through the wide open window streamed the sun onto the yellow varnished walls and bare floor. Everything on the table flashed and glittered. In the middle, there was an old salad bowl filled with yellow and red nasturtiums. She smiled, and a look of deep content shone in her eyes. Stanley pushed back his chair and got up. Coach, Coach Stanley, Beryl's voice cried from the gate. Stanley waved his arm to Linda. No time to say goodbye, he cried, and meant that as a punishment to her. He snatched his bowler hat, dashed out of the house, and swung down the garden path. Yes, the coach was there waiting, and Beryl, leaning over the open gate, was laughing up at somebody or other, just as if nothing had passed. The heartlessness of women, the way they took it for granted it was your job to slave away for them while they didn't even take the trouble to see that your walking stick wasn't lost. Kelly trailed his whip across the horses. Goodbye, Stanley, called Beryl, sweetly and gaily. It was easy enough to say goodbye, and there she stood, idle, shading her eyes with her hand. The worst of it was Stanley had to shout goodbye too, for the sake of appearances. Then he saw her turn, give a little skip, and run back to the house. She was glad to be rid of him. Yes, she was thankful. Into the living room she ran and called, He's gone. Linda cried from her room, Beryl, has Stanley gone? Old Mrs. Fairfield appeared carrying the boy in his little flannel coatie. Gone? Gone. Oh, the relief, the difference it made to have the man out of the house. Their very voices were changed as they called to one another. They sounded warm and loving and as if they shared a secret. Beryl went over to the table. 
Have another cup of tea, mother. It's still hot. She wanted, somehow, to celebrate the fact that they could do what they liked now. There was no man to disturb them. The whole perfect day was theirs. No, thank you, child, said old Mrs. Fairfield. But the way at that moment she tossed the boy up and said, A goosa-goosa-ga, to him meant that she felt the same. The little girls ran into the paddock like chickens let out of the coop. Even Alice, the servant girl, washing up the dishes in the kitchen, caught the infection and used the precious tank water in a perfectly reckless fashion. Oh, these men, said she, and she plunged the teapot into the bowl and held it under the water even after it had stopped bubbling. Four. Wait for me, Isabel. Kisa, wait for me. There was poor little Lottie left behind again because she found it so fearfully hard to get over the stile by herself. When she stood on the first step, her knees began to wobble. She grasped the post. Then you had to put one leg over. But which leg, she could never decide. And when she did finally put one leg over with a sort of stamp of despair, then the feeling was awful. She was half in the paddock still and half in the tussock grass. She clutched the post desperately and lifted up her voice. Wait for me. No, don't wait for her, Keisha, said Isabel. She's such a little silly. She's always making a fuss. Come on. And she tugged Keisha's jersey. You can use my bucket if you come with me, she said kindly. It's bigger than yours. But Keisha couldn't leave Lottie all by herself. She ran back to her. By this time, Lottie was very red in the face and breathing heavily. Here, put your other foot over, said Keisha. Where? Lottie looked down at Keisha as if from a mountain height. Here where my hand is. Keisha patted the place. Oh, there do you mean? 
Lottie gave a deep sigh and put the second foot over. Now, sort of turn round and sit down and slide, said Keisha. But there's nothing to sit down on, Keisha, said Lottie. She managed it at last. And once it was over, she shook herself and began to beam. I'm getting better at climbing over stiles, aren't I, Keisha? Lottie's was a very hopeful nature. The pink and the blue sunbonnet followed Isabel's bright red sunbonnet up that sliding, slipping hill. At the top, they paused to decide where to go and to have a good stare at who was there already. Seen from behind, standing against the skyline, gesticulating largely with their spades, they looked like minute, puzzled explorers.